All right, and Wednesday, it is the 507 Mark Eastern Standard, Ian Trottier coming at you here. Weekly, you can catch me on Discussions of Truth, uh, Winwood One, Stop Mass Media, Discussions of Truth, those are three of the outlets, look for Freedom Reserved, uh, publication date, I think it's being released in some areas tomorrow, that's April 23rd. And in other jurisdictions in July, but regardless, keep tabs on Barnes and Noble and Amazon chapters in Canada uh, for discussions. Or excuse me, Freedom Reserve, No More Lies. That is a 384-page book written by myself for you. Uh, let's see. All right, so we've got a great show coming up here in a few moments. Going to bring on recently retired Doctor. Robert Spaulding is a Brigadier General of the U.S. Air Force. He will be discussing his book, Stealth War, uh, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. How do, how do you feel about, uh, about China uh, in that regard? How do, well, well, more importantly, no, it not, not, not really necessarily how you feel about China would be my question. Uh, my question is, how do you feel about the e American elite that you and me and the rest of us in this country have allowed to manipulate, in a sense, uh, the way we live our lives and allow a country like China to rise, uh, does that mean? What does that mean for the global system that we allow to control ourselves? Uh, nobody likes wars. Nobody likes violence. Uh, we have, at least in the United States, had many, many years without a war on this land, uh, and uh, we certainly strive and attempt to make that continue. And certainly uh, globally. Uh, okay, so Freedom Reserve, No More Lies, a publisher, Trine Day. And I would like to uh, uh, draw your attention to Trine Day and some of their other authors. Uh, Paul Hellyer, who's a former high-ranking Canadian, well, currently high-ranking Canadian politician. He's the highest-ranking Canadian politician outside of uh, Philip, I believe, in, uh, in, in the U.K., that would be the Queen's husband. Uh, yes, Paul Hellyer, uh, at one point in his career, was Deputy Prime Minister, equivalent to, uh, in, in Canada. He's a former guest on this program, and he is a trying day author. Uh, another author I would like you to pay attention to would be Anthony Sutton. He no longer uh, breathes. He's no longer amongst us, but his books and his works are. I'm going to briefly run through a few of them for you. Um, but let me take a moment and address, uh, next week's guests. Avi Jorish is a seasoned entrepreneur and Middle East expert. He's a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council and founder of IMS, a merchant processing company that services clients nationwide, a thought leader in exploring global innovation trends, the Arab world, counterterrorism, and illicit finance. Mr. Jorish previously served in the U.S. Departments of Treasury and Defense. He holds a bachelor's degree in history from Bimington, Binghamton, pardon me, University, I'm assuming that's in the UK, and master's degree in Islamic history from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He also studied Arabic and Islamic philosophy at the American University in Cairo, uh, the Bremen Institution of Sunni Islamic Learning. An author of five books, George's articles have appeared in influential outlets, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, Forbes, George's most recent book, Best-selling, by the way, Thou Shalt Innovate, 
Isn't that the crux of any prosperous civilization, giving each mind that we possess on our shoulders uh, the opportunity to think freely, to develop new technology, to write poetry, to sing songs, to act in movies, the arts, um, to innovate. Innovation is key to any healthy uh, society in my regard. So he's a member of the Council of Foreign Relations in New York and a young presence organization, YPO. Thou shalt innovate. Avi George will join us next week, Wednesday, 5 o'clock. Joining us at the 6 o'clock hour is Doki Fasi Gian. I pronounced her uh, name right. She is the U.S. Uh, rep, rep for Reporters Without Borders. This is a Paris, I understand, a Paris-based uh, free press institution, Reporters Without Borders. Uh, Doki will be joining us. I believe she is Iranian uh, by origin. She'll be joining us next week at the 6 o'clock hour. So that doubleheader coming your way next week here on Discussions of Truth. In addition, uh, moving, uh, moving into next month, uh, Oxford uh, scholar, he currently uh, teaches history at Oxford University. At the, he's a fellow of the St. Cross College. He's been, that, uh, been in that position since 1995. Uh, Dearmond Indian John McCulloch will be joining us uh, to discuss his research. Um, on various uh, uh, influences in, 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 in Western history, mainly uh, stemming from uh, empirical Rome. Uh, so he has a vast knowledge of uh, UK uh, and uh, uh, British uh, European history. Uh, he was ordained a deacon in the Church of England. But he's a gay man, and he says it was just impossible to proceed further within the conditions of the Anglican setup because I was determined that I would make no bones about who I was. I was brought up to be truthful, and truth has always mattered to me. The church couldn't cope, and so we parted company. That would be one church of England. Uh, I don't get political on the program, and I don't get religious on the program, even though uh, most topics are political. I don't take sides. I believe both sides of the major parties in the United States are completely corrupt. Uh, joining us later in the month, uh, this would be May 27th, uh, another controversial guest, James O'Keefe, uh, who at a, uh, a young age, uh, in his mid-30s, I believe he is now, uh, he's a uh, native of Bergen, New Jersey. He's got a, a BA in philosophy from Rutgers. In 2010, O'Keefe funded... A founded Project Veritas, uh, and this is controversial in the sense that it has received donations from the uh, Koch Brothers Foundations, uh, well, a foundation linked to the Koch Brothers, and also the Trump uh, Foundation. Uh, it's controversial in the sense that Harvard scholars uh, Yochi, Benkler, Robert Ferris, and Hal Roberts, if I pronounce the names right, uh, pardon me if I haven't, referred to his website, that would be Project Veritas, truth-seeking website, as being a right-wing disinformation outfit. However, James's objective is to bring you and deliver you the truth. Uh, my opinion on your mass media outlets uh, is that uh, most of them are completely corrupt, just like the politics in this country. A lot of work to be done out there, America. Uh, coming uh, your way June 3rd. This is rescheduled. Uh, from a lapse uh, of last week, he's written three New York Times bestselling books. Gerald Posner, he's a former Wall Street attorney, and uh, he's currently an investigative journalist. Uh, his book, Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. Coming your way June 3rd. Okay, this is Discussions of Truth. You can tune in every Wednesday, 5 o'clock Eastern. I'm right here with you. I'm Ian Hamilton Trottier. Uh, check out my uh, interview with Chuck Moskowitz last week. Uh, that was um, that was done. You can find that you can find that at his website, Chuck Moskowitz. He's uh, based out of Boston, um, and uh, done it to the program by uh, Stop Mass Media's T-shirt. Um, and uh, follow me on Twitter and Instagram. The spelling of the name is I A N. T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Okay, bringing, uh, bringing on uh, Dr. Spaulding uh, right here momentarily. Uh, Robert Spaulding III. Okay, I'm going to dial him in right now.
By the way, you can find his background information at my website. That's iantrotier.com. I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R.com. Attempting to connect. All right, let's try this again here. Let's shut. I've confirmed with him. So thanks for standing by. And try this route here. One moment. Okay, we'll try him again. See if this works. Again, bringing on. Here he is. Robert Spaulding. Brigadier General. Hey, how's it going? Dr. Spaulding, good afternoon to you, sir. I'm well. How are you? Great, great. Welcome to Discussions of Truth. I am Ian Hamilton Trottier. Um, would take a minute for listeners, please, sir, and give a quick background on uh, your credentials. They are vast, and uh, any listener can certainly find your background uh, through the U.S. Air Force website. Uh, are you fluent in Chinese? I am. Yeah, I went to the Defense Language Institute in, uh, in, in Monterey, California and studied Chinese and, of course, lived in China off and on um, for almost three years. Ni hao. Ni hao. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I, I lived in San Francisco for some time and, and I, would, I, would, I would go through Chinatown and I would, I would attempt to pick up uh, little sayings that I could. It was very, very difficult language to grasp. So impressive that you, uh, you speak it fluently. Um, anyway, so, so if you would take a moment, please, uh, Robert, and, and give a, a brief background for listeners about you. Yeah, so I um, I uh, just retired uh, from the Air Force a little over a year ago after almost 27 years, uh, primarily as a B-52 and B-2 pilot. And most of my time was spent flying the B-2 stealth bomber. Uh, as I said, I went to China in 2002 to 2004 as an Olmsted Scholar, as a as an air major in the Air Force. And so my career really from that point became about flying B-2s in China. And so I worked at the Office of Secretary of Defense uh, and then, you know, rose to um, be the vice wing commander at the 509th Bomb Wing, which is uh, the only wing that has B-2s in America. Uh, and then from there was really uh, exclusively focused on China for the rest of my career. And, and I spent a year at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York as a senior military fellow. I then went to advise the chairman of the Joint Chiefs on China. Uh, for two years at the Pentagon, then to be the senior defense official and defense attache in Beijing uh, at the U.S. Embassy, and then to be the senior director for strategy at the White House, where uh, I, I was the chief architect for our current national security strategy. And so you couldn't have picked a better career uh, trajectory for somebody to really have influence at the highest levels of government. Um, on the academic side, I have a PhD in economics and, and, and statistics, and that really has helped inform the way I view uh, competition in the 21st century. And so uh, you know, I'm outside now as a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. I'm an author of Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. I have a new book that's going to be coming out uh, probably next year is a rewrite of Unrestricted Warfare. And uh, I'm focused on really the, the U.S.-China uh, relationship, economic and national security, and really the, the military balance in the Indo-Pacific, and, and really looking forward to the discussion. So this is this is a very extensive, uh, Robert. Let me ask you, you, um, you went through, you started your career out of Fresno State. Are you a Californian? Uh, I w was a Californian. I haven't been a Californian since I left uh, <laughs> Since I left Fresno in uh, in March 17th in 1992 and drove to my first duty station in, in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And where were you born? I was born in San Jose, California. So uh, let's get into uh, let's get into the foreign foreign relations uh, council on foreign relations. I think a lot of people consider it, uh, and we've had differing views and opinions on as to what it is on this program. Um, it, it's 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 more than just a Manhattan-based dinner club. 
when you would attend meetings, what, what is the Council on Foreign Relations in your opinion? Um, it is. Uh, it, so it was set up initially as a um, kind of uh, like a think tank before we really had think tanks. And it was focused on providing advice to um, the administration on how to deal with Europeans. So it was really about, you know, um, you know, providing advice on foreign policy with regard to Europe. And and really, it's it's grown uh, from that to be a think tank, to be a publisher uh, and to be, um, you know, a thought leader in, in foreign policy. Um, that being said, you know, as a senior military fellow, what you what you're there to do is really understand a, a, co a totally different group of people. You know, I, I mostly spent you know my 20 years at that point uh, dealing with national security type people. Now I got to interface with business and finance people and diplomats. So it was really it was a broadening experience for me. And most of the time you're there, you're you're um, you're thinking, you're writing, uh, you're engaging with people, and you, we have uh, a lot of forums where different leaders come to speak. They could be diplomats, they could be military, they could be corporate leaders, uh, they can be economists, they can be um, foreign dignitaries like presidents and prime ministers. And it really is a, um, a, you know, a forum to kind of discuss kind of the key issues of the day and, um, and hear what senior leaders of all types and all sectors have on their mind and in, in, in what they're, you know, kind of what agendas they're, they're pursuing. So th this is, uh, it's, it's a, it's an organization by invite only. Isn't that correct? You were invited to it. I was, you know, in, in the case of me being a senior military fellow, um, that is an, a, um, a, a program that is in done in cooperation with all the military services. So uh, each of the services sends one um, yep. colonel level. So this is somebody that's very senior in the in the um, in that in that service uh, to uh, Manhattan for a year to essentially have this program. And then typically those um, those have traditionally resulted in um, you know promotion to field to uh, to uh, flag rank. And so. Um, I think somewhere over half of the people that go to those to go to that senior military fellowship uh, ends up becoming a, a general or an admiral. Okay, and what is exactly a brigadier general? That's a one-star general. Okay, and there's a, a total of—is it five? Uh, there's uh, there's uh, the the highest rank is four-star, and that's uh, called just a general. Okay, um, so in the in the Council on Foreign Relations, it, would this, in your opinion, would that be kind of like the organization uh, that is uh, basically um, construing um, foreign affairs? Is it would would it be in 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 conjunction with what's happening on Wall Street, the economics? of the country and then what's happening in, in Capitol Hill there it's the, kind of those two entities are being drawn into this, uh, this think tank of the council on foreign relations. Um, is, is, is that a, for listeners, is that a good, uh, kind of analogy and painting to, 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 to draw for, for what that is, uh, give them a better understanding of what the council on foreign relations is. Yeah, I think it's just a it's a forum to discuss the issues of the day. Um, of course, they have the magazine Foreign Affairs. That's a completely um, separate, you know, entity within the Council on Foreign Relations that that really is focused on publishing articles. And then they have it's a think tank because they have, um, you know, senior fellows that are, you know, essentially uh, work at the Council on Foreign Relations and do research in different foreign policy uh, related topics, and you've got uh, you've got representatives of America's elite attending those meetings, correct? Yes, you do. You have you know what you would consider to be you know CEOs, um, corporate officers, um, uh, corporate directors, um, you know you know financial types, ac academics, um, and really just you know from all all different yeah. sectors.
Yep. And so we're, we're looking at, I think it was 1933, somewhere in the 30s, the, 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 the Council on Foreign Relations was, uh, was put together. Um, and like you're saying, initially it was put together to uh, discuss Europe. At what point in time, uh, through uh, your experience, and, and it may have been before uh, your membership at the Council on Foreign Relations or before what you did with the White House, at one point in time in your career did you see China uh, becoming uh, becoming a threat, or, or, or at what point did you see that? Well, you know, um, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't at that time. Okay. Um, you know, I would say I was of the of of the opinion that China was, you know, essentially a benign threat, and probably had reached the end of its economic growth model, and would probably. Um, stagnate and therefore, um, you know, really wouldn't be a problem, uh, you know, for the United States. And, right. you know, of course, I met some, a lot of people there and learned a lot more about go global trade and finance. Um, and then there's some people there that essentially, you know, had a different view. And that view was that it was going to continue to grow economically, surpass the U.S. economically, and then become the most powerful country uh, in the world. And, you know, of course, at that time, I had what I would what I would consider to be a very biased worldview, and I think you know very hubristic uh, worldview. Yeah, it, let's let's tackle, for instance, the these um, these islands, these man-made islands uh, that, that that are being developed. Uh, Taiwan and some of the neighbors, of course, are, are against this. Um, what's going on there in your opinion? Is that, is that opinion? Is that is that just a an, an extension of the? Uh, the, the Chinese military desire to control the uh, region, or is there something else going on there? Yeah, I mean, it goes. It really uh, uh, has. Um, it goes back to at least the '80s, maybe even before, okay. where the Chinese Communist Party asked the People's Liberation Army to um, essentially assert control over the Chinese, uh, the the South China Sea. Uh, of course, the um, the PLA. Navy at the time was not did not have sufficient strength or endurance in in out in the South China Sea to do that, um, and so they said that they needed you know uh, you know the ability to have staging areas out there, and so it, it really it really wasn't until they had they felt like they had enough economic power to sustain those islands that they started to build those islands after Xi Jinping came to power. And so um, they've had the they've had the the um, desire all along and the strategy all along. They just never felt like they were, had the the wherewithal to do it. And, and so, you know, when Xi Jinping came to power, you know, the the idea of hide and bide that Deng Xiaoping had had used to essentially grow the power of the Chinese Communist Party and the PLA had, you know, he felt that it was time to come from out from behind that and really, you know, exert themselves in the international order. And certainly, purchasing from an American standpoint, the purchasing items that are made in China is uh, pretty much uh, impossible to do, right? I mean, uh, we've allowed we as a republic, we've allowed uh, our big companies to uh, seek cheaper labor. For instance, Nike shoes. Uh, to be to be manufactured in China has that come back to uh, to haunt us today in 2020? Well, clearly it has. And when you look at the coronavirus and you realize that 97 percent of our antibiotics come from China, most of the um, the um, active ingredients for pharmaceuticals come from China. Uh, of course, fentanyl comes from those same factories. Um, also, um, N95 masks, PPE. Um, the components in F-35s, I mean, you name it, it's coming from China and, and really because, you know, U.S. corporations wanted to increase their profit margins and found they could do so in China using, you know, very, um, you know, poor labor standards and poor environmental controls. Yeah. So we've basically built a giant. Would you agree with that? We basically built a giant for ourselves? Yeah, purposely so. Well, purposely so. I, I, expand on that. Well, we believe that, um, you know, you know, when we initially went back to China, uh, the idea was to balance the Soviet Union. You know, they had you know thousands of okay. nuclear weapons pointed at the United States. 
and we wanted to use um, the, the, the China to put pressure on uh, the Soviet Union to really peel them away from the, uh, the socialist orbit. And of course, um, but after that, it really became about this desire to transform China into, into a democracy. And there was essentially a, a fundamental belief that economic theory and social theory could be brought to bear. Economic theory, which says open markets lead to wealth, and social theory that says wealth leads to democracy. And so we felt if we could grow their strength and power economically and their prosperity, that they would naturally democratize. And for the most part, if you look at Eastern Europe, uh, that was that was going fairly well at the end of the Cold War. In 1989, though, with the Tiananmen Massacre, the Chinese Communist Party really realized what was happening and decided at that point to really change their strategy with regard to how they um, embraced the West. And it was really that they wanted the innovation, the technology, the talent, and the capital, but they didn't want the values and the principles. And so they created the system to allow them to have those uh, things that they wanted and to keep out those things that they didn't. We didn't recognize this. Okay. We didn't understand it. And, uh, and, uh, and unfortunately, we just continued to double down on a strategy that they had figured out and, just, and had moved in a different direction. Are you familiar with a former Stanford Hoover fellow, uh, uh, Dr. Anthony Sutton? Has that name crossed your path? No. Okay. He wrote about... Um, well, he, he would he would write, for instance, Robert. He would write about uh, Prescott Bush and being involved in banking and talking about Europe. Uh, he would he would write about um, funding the uh, funding the Nazi regime and then also funding the Western Alliance. And so, what uh, Sutton would 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 conclude, in a sense, uh, is a, a German philosophical approach uh, uh, to controlling the nature of an outcome. So you're you're basically Funding both sides to dominate the nature of the outcome is called a Hegelian dialectic. Uh, you might be you might be familiar with that. So one thing that strikes me just from the outside, uh, I, I'm looking at China and I'm and I want to get I want to get into the coronavirus a little bit and get your thoughts on on what's going on there and the coronavirus. I'm looking at China and I'm thinking, okay, wait, wait a second, okay, just again, just as a as a as a human being, I'm saying, you know, historically they've built a massive wall around them to to kind of keep out intruders. Um, yeah, it, it, they've they've adapted this uh, uh, communistic socialistic form of, uh, of of government, but it kind of feeds into what you were saying, and that 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 is a like 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 uh, post the Bolshe Bolshevik era, that is you know, Soviet Union. Th that is what both of those uh, countries have adapted really from uh, a German uh, inception. Um, so you're, you're looking at like you know two communist powers in the world, uh, yet. Those those forms of uh, of government, if you will, not 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 exact. Uh, you know, they, they've adapted them. Uh, really sprang from Germany. Do you have any uh, comments on that? Um, I do think that um, you know, essentially, the way that the Chinese have structured their system is is yeah. is very similar um, in aspects um, to to that. Um, Particularly the German, the the the, uh, the pre World War II German model, I think was um, you can see you can definitely see aspects of how they've organized now to uh, to that. So you're looking at uh, you're looking at the American elite, and here we're allowing our large uh, companies to go into China and really kind of. Uh, yeah, in my 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 opinion, abuse the, the 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 cheap labor. You're obviously taking away from uh, American uh, workers, but we've kind of sat back as Americans, and we've allowed this to happen. Um, where do we go from here? In in your in your view? Well, I mean, it's it's really about reevaluating, you know, how we've allowed, particularly in the post um, Cold War world, our economy and society to evolve. It's really, you know, there's a there's a great um, book by uh, Matt Stoller on um, on kind of the uh, the the concept of the monopoly and and you know the, this ebb right. and flow uh, in the United States from between the monopoly and the and the and the breakup of the monopolies you know so this competition between efficiency and innovation 
and I think you know we've 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 really um, I think consolidated industry in quite a bit, and I think it's been. I think it's actually been, you know, closely aligned with this idea of offshoring manufacturing and and really the um, the uh, accumulation of resources in very large um, corporate structures. And so, I think, you know, to to be honest, I think it's been actually quite damaging to our society and mm-hmm. and really um, eliminated a whole class of work, particularly in in those that were employed in the factories that were. The seven, over seventy thousand factories that were taken to China, uh, you know, and millions of people, uh, you know, unemployed there that that never found work and really became dispossessed. I think I think the current administration. Uh, I try not to take sides politically, but hey, you've got you've got a guy in the White House, regardless of his mental state or what he tweets or the, or how loose his language is and various opinions regarding that. He's he's he basically just trying to make his country uh, stronger um, but but it doesn't seem uh, it doesn't seem he's able to um, to accomplish anything and, and, and much of anything and and and, and, and going back through the gener- uh, through the administrations it seems like um, regardless of domestic issues uh, foreign policy of the various administrations seems to be uh, seems to be aligned um, what is, what is stealth war here in your view, uh, Dr. Spaulding? Well, it's really about, it's, it's recognizing, um, the trends of globalization and the internet. Okay. Yeah. And the willingness of democracies to essentially, um, give up control of, um, the, their, their control of their borders and really their institutions to a broader, you know, a broader system, and um, and then using kind of open markets as a way to facilitate um, economic growth, and and I think if the, you know the system clearly is based on uh, adopting this this sense of uh, fairness and fair play in the system, and so if everybody follows rules, you know, it it. it tends to work out, you know, if I'm good at making bikes and you're good at growing corn, then we do what we're good at and then we trade. But if one system realizes that they can essentially avoid the rules and there's no overarching way to enforce the rules because there's, you know, in, in this, in the, in a, in a geopolitical sense, there's no, um, one enforcer, then what happens is those countries that are following the rules tend to continue to lose ground to that country that's not following the rules. And, and like I said, that was, it was done with forethought in the beginning. And then I think, I think essentially um, people kept deluding themselves that this was actually providing positive outcomes for America and other democracies and really didn't recognize that it was re- resulting in near stagnant growth for you know, almost two decades. And so, I mean, I think that really the, the, it wasn't until the coronavirus that, that, uh, you know, people really had the opportunity to see what I had seen in the Pentagon back in 2014, which is we had been, we'd essentially uh, made ourselves dependent almost entirely on a regime that essentially disavowed or or, or repudiated all of the principles and values that we stood for. And so if you're in a system where um, where that one nation can grab the reins of power because you've essentially abdicated that power because you believe that, you know, everybody's going to follow the rules, then you then you have what you have today, which is, you know, the Chinese Communist Party are pulling the strings in nearly every international institution. And we saw that with the World Health Organization. That's pretty bold. Um, is it possible, in your opinion, that uh, that we have uh, been infiltrated on 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 various levels and we don't realize it uh, in in a sense uh, in a stealth sense? Would that be a possibility? Yeah, and you know, I, I, somebody used coined the term today um, that I was talking to cognitive framework, and I think that's a good way of putting it. You know, there was I think. Essentially, the Chinese were able to create this cognitive framework that said that they were actually adopting 
um, you know, the rules and of the road, but in their own way. And we, uh, and many uh, in in the West, didn't recognize that it was actually um, a parasitic relationship. And so, um, many were co-opted uh, by money. Many were co-opted through this co cognitive framework, and many still are. And, you know, even after the coronavirus, they're still they still fail to see how dangerous um, this relationship with a, a totalitarian regime can be to our democracy and our society and our prosperity. So, what is the coronavirus or the COVID nineteen strain of it? What's going on there, in your view? Well, you know. I don't know the origin of it um, other than to say that um, it's a bat-related virus uh, that has uh, shown to be uh, to have human-to-human -human transmission. Um, and it just so happens that there's a P4 lab and a P2 lab in the same town where it popped up uh, in, a lab, in labs, by the way, that where researchers were doing work on, on gain-of-function for bat-related coronaviruses. Um, and so, you know, without getting access to those labs and researchers, you know, I, I find it highly unlikely that this came from the wet market because there's really no, um, there's no breadcrumb trail from that, but there's definitely, um, positive, um, you know, breadcrumb trails from, Hey, this was, this was a, this was a, a virus that was harvested from a bat. Um, somewhere in China, and then through gain-of-function research was made to be infectious to humans and somehow, based on um, uh, safety precautions, uh, escaped the, the lab. So if we look at some of the, uh, the founding principles that uh, we've inherited collectively, again, as a republic from those that wrote the Constitution that we, uh, that we all uh, uh, live by, uh, fortunately, you look at some of those founding principles, and we look at free press, for instance. Um, uh, if, if there's a blog called uh, Zero Hedge, I think they're a financial blog. They uh, had done their own research, their own reporting, uh, which is uh, in line with uh, constitutional rights, as far as I understand. Uh, yet, uh, yet they were banned from Twitter for taking an alternative view. Outside of again, what you're saying with the uh, with the wet market, uh, they're saying uh, 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 they're saying more of hey, there was research going on at this uh, at this Wuhan laboratory. Uh, we need to be looking more at the angle of was this a uh, was this a lapsing security? Was this a leak, uh, an accidental leak that was covered up? Um, and even going to the extreme of sa extreme as saying it was it was leaked on purpose. Uh, I, I'm kind of putting two throwing two questions out there for you, Robert. But if we could isolate it to um, uh, to freedom of press, how, how do you feel about um, uh, about a, a financial blog doing what again they are able to do per the Constitution? Yet they're being banned from from Twitter for for taking an, an alternative view. How do you feel about that? So, you know, um, when I was in the White House uh, working on the national security strategy, one of the things that, um, you know, we talked about was this, you know, enormous power of technology to influence. And uh, essentially, you know, this this open data models Internet system that we've created is enor creates enormous opportunity to aggregate data. And because data drives uh, data analytics and, um, and big data and artificial intelligence, um, and machine learning and, and the like, and that can be used to influence at the individual level through social media that, you know, these tech companies, which become, you know, as I said, you know, semi-monopolies in the United States right. and really globally, had really um, created this undue ability to influence our population. And oh, by the way, because the Chinese Communist Party had adopted many of the same technologies and business models, they were using it not only to um, sell, influence people to buy shoes, but also influence their, their population to be good citizens through the social credit score. And so the idea uh, of a secure nationwide 5G network was really to reestablish democratic principles in the, in the digital world by building an internet that actually allowed you to control your data. So the government didn't have access to it. Uh, foreign governments didn't have access to it. A tech company didn't have access to it. Only you had access um, through encryption and, and you, you held all the keys. 
you know, that I think, you know, the conclusion I came to is there's no way in the current system for us to preserve democracy, particularly if you have a strong, uh, powerful uh, authoritarian regime that has the ability to use these tools of the internet and, and uh, aggregation of data. In fact, Kai-Fu Li, who wrote uh, AI Superpower and is a leading AI researcher in China, says that you know China is to data as Saudi Arabia is to oil. So the goal of China is really to become the most powerful data company or country in the world and to use that for economic gain and, um, and geopolitical influence. Have they designed a an attack? Uh, of course, this is not isolated to the United States, but the, the United States uh, would seem to be the main driving force economically, uh, globally, and of course, the coronavirus has spread around the planet. Uh, I don't know what countries haven't received it, um, but is this is it a possibility in your expertise and your understanding? of uh, the Chinese way of thinking and culture is this is this was this designed to uh, do what it may be doing and that severely damaging the American middle class um, I so you know it's hard to say again the origin without having access to the lab I think what you can say is that the Chinese leadership knew Chinese Communist Party's leadership knew that there was human to human transmission uh, they allowed um, the people uh, during uh, Chinese New Year, which was in the middle of the month in January, millions of people to come to Wuhan and then leave Wuhan after intermingling, knowing that there was human-to-human -human transmission. They did that with forethought. In fact, Xi Jinping said that on 7 January, he was personally in control of what was going on in Wuhan. So we know that they were in control. They knew. We know that in December, they knew that they had human-to-human -human transmission. So... What happened, wh whether or not this was done in terms of, uh, you know, how, what's the origin of the virus, we can't no. say. But what we can say, the origin of the pandemic is 100 percent from direct action of the Chinese Communist Party to allow those five million people to leave and go to the four, point, uh, four corners of the earth. Uh, Dr. Spaulding, the title of your book is Stealth War. Um, for listeners, sum that up. What is stealth war and, 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 and how do Americans defend themselves from it? Well, it's really um, using the openness to, to really undermine uh, democracies. And, and the way that you do that is, for instance, rather than capital... Uh, which is free to go around the globe now, rather than going to those investments that have the best um, market uh, or investment return, um, they go, uh, a lot of them go to China. And they go to China because they're allowed to register their stocks and, and bond listings in the United States, despite having no requirement to be auditable like a U.S. company or other company from a developed country. And so we allowed that, you know, that beneficial um, favor, if you will, to China to allow their companies to be registered and listed on our stock exchanges and, and bonding, uh, bond portfolios. And then we allow our retirement funds to go to China via these mechanisms. Now, that means that that capital is not available to go to investment in the United States. At the same time, we allowed uh, U.S. corporations to invest money in China, despite the fact that China has a non-convertible currency and strict capital controls, which means that if they invest money in China and make profits on that money, that money has to stay in China. And so we allow those companies, those corporations, to report in during their earnings calls and during their annual statements those profits. And so despite the fact that the shareholder can't actually have access to those profits because they're, they're kept and held in China. And at the same time, we allowed China to have you know, really a tax-free or a tariff-free trading arrangement with the United States besides, besides the fact they did not have a free trade economy. They're in fact a centrally planned economy through the allocation of resources. And so those three things, access to Western capital markets, access to corporate Western cap corporate investment, and access to U.S. markets without tariffs, meant that our entire economy became 
uh, co-opted by Chinese Communist Party strategy and, and meant the, the essentially the, um, the, the loss of jobs for millions of Americans. And that is essentially the, the big play here. You know, the other things that the Chinese Communist Party do, does is, you know, influence the media. They have, uh, you know, a, a broad array, a, a broad array of propaganda. They have, um, you know, they have intellectual property theft. They have, they use um, hacking for all sorts of um, different things. It's really a broad array of um, of tools that they use. And finally, they have partnerships with uh, other regimes similar to them, like Iran, Russia, and North Korea, that yeah. they use for saber rattling. That ensures that the United States continues to spend, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars on defense to essentially deal with these, you know, quote, threats, while at the same time, you know, essentially taking advantage of all the, uh, all the uh, money that they can earn from the United States by, by helping the United States deploy military forces all over the world. It sounds like we have a, 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 a definitely a a a, prob, a management of economics, if you will, banking perhaps problem in the United States. I'm going to throw something at you uh, here, uh, Doctor Spalding. Uh, were you aware? Uh, again, we're looking at oil closing at negative. What was it, thirty-seven or something like that a day ago? Um, I, the future will tell what this uh, this is coronavirus. Uh, will have uh, the devastation it will the, the impact it'll have on on again I keep going back to that American middle class in my view you've got to have a strong healthy uh, middle class to uh, keep up the democratic values um, I'm going to throw something out at you um, and, and see I want to hear your comment on it Microsoft uh, recently uh, a couple years ago and, and and recently had it published it's a world international patent. Uh, W02022006060606 is the actual patent for listeners to look up. This is public information. Uh, what this patent is, is a, a patent on cryptocurrencies. And what strikes me here, Dr. Spaulding, is that recently Bill Gates has come out and his solution is certainly to vaccinate people that have uh, contracted this coronavirus. Uh, and and he's also he's also brought up a microchipping uh, uh, issue scenario where these people can be tracked. Again, you have to go back to these constitutional rights. Is there any way for Americans to uh, you know, defend those rights? Is that a violation of rights? So it becomes uh, a legal issue. Uh, but Microsoft, uh, literally, and they're backing a company called ID Twenty Twenty, which are which are digital, digital certifications, uh, digital IDs. Um, and Microsoft has a patent now, world patent on a cryptocurrency that'll run off of implanted uh, human beings, uh, microchipped implanted. What are your, what are your, were you aware of this and what are your uh, comments? Um, no, I'm not aware of this. You know, I think if you have um, an encrypted internet that's uh, based on identity management um, and the and data is handled properly, that you can have a, a, a system of identification that doesn't necessarily violate privacy rules. Now, I don't know about chipping people, but I do know that, you know, having some way of verifying who you are um, to do business uh, in the country, I think, is something that's that's actually uh, quite sensible, both in terms of banking or doing or work with the government or really doing business. I think it's important to have an identity. Um, and I don't know. Uh, I'm not not sure I'm uh, interested in being microchipped. Uh, but, um, you know, in, in the 5G world, without right. the imposition of security uh, of encryption and specifically uh, using artificial intelligence to do facial recognition, right. but then, you know, following that up with a randomized scrub of the data so that, you know, when that happens, uh, privacy is preserved. I think that's the kinds of principles you need to build into the to the network that that gets built. And so. You know, I do believe that identity is important, uh, but I also believe that privacy is important. I think you can have both uh, in a proper design of the Internet. Well, very well said. Uh, very well said. So as we wind down here in the last uh, few moments, uh, I'd like to get your closing thoughts and closing comments. 
uh, we're looking at a very possibly uh, post-COVID-19 uh, uh, world that is different from what we were experiencing uh, before uh, before the, the global uh, lockdown, penetration, whatever, maybe pandemic. Um, uh, what are, uh, again, what are your thoughts here for Americans, uh, Robert? What are your thoughts for Americans to be doing? We've got we, you know, we've got we've got some Americans out there in uh, in in Arizona and uh, various states. I think it may have been Virginia that are holding rallies. They don't want to be confined to their homes. Um, what are some What are some thoughts for 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 listeners out there uh, coming from a uh, an Air Force general here? We've got uh, Dr. Robert Spaulding joining us here. Uh, what are some closing thoughts for for listeners, uh, primarily Americans? Uh, what they can do moving forward. We've, we've given them a lot of, uh, things to think about. Uh, what's, what's the best thing? What's the best foot forward for, for Americans? Well, you know, I, I would go to look at Taiwan, you know, they, back in December, they sent researchers to, uh, China. They didn't get the right answers. They came back, they activated their CDC. They instituted a lot of measures. Um, you know, they didn't do draconian things. They basically gave the citizenry the information they needed, you know, about social distancing and, and wearing masks. And, the, and, and uh, for the most part, you know, Taiwan has probably had some of the best outcomes uh, in, in the world. Of course, we relied on what the WHO said. Um, of course, the, Taiwan didn't trust the WHO because they, they understood that it had been infiltrated by China. I think, you know, what we can learn from that is that democracies really can, you know, deal with a pandemic much better than totalitarian regimes without, you know, losing their democratic nature. It, you know, I do not um, think it's great when, um, you know, leaders in America, political leaders, you know, uh, complain because people are protesting the fact that they're being locked up. This is our, a democracy. Right. And I think uh, you have the right to assemble. You have the right to free speech. These are all uh, constitutional rights. It is true that um, for the most part, you know, it, the, the idea to flatten the curve, to allow for our uh, medical professionals to have the an ability to give the best medical treatment to everybody is a good idea in the beginning stages. But that being said, I think part of this was hyped. I think the models were were way out of whack. I think the the amount of people that we uh, that we believed would die in the beginning was too high, and therefore this led to this, you know, I think extended um, lockdown of the country that I don't think is healthy for a democracy. And so, um, you know, I don't I don't think it's good for any political leader in the United States to complain when. Americans are in the street saying, stop, uh, you know, locking us up without, you know, the imposition of martial law. I think this is a this is clearly uh, against their constitutional rights. And um, and, uh, you know, I think we'll be found out so by the courts. Very well said, uh, Dr. Spaulding. Thank you for joining the program. Uh, honored to have you and keep up the great work. Thank you so much.